0: How do athletes manage diabetes? You are listening to ReachMD, XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Ann Peters, professor of medicine and director of the University of Southern California Clinical Diabetes Program and author of the book Conquering Diabetes, a cutting-edge comprehensive program for prevention and treatment. Dr. Peters, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable.
1: Excellent. Thanks for having me.
0: What led to your interest in diabetes?
1: Well, I think I'm a person who likes to sit around and think a lot, and diabetes is the perfect disease for that because it's really the analysis of blood sugars and food and how a person's body reacts to a variety of different settings, and it's also a disease in which one has long-term follow-up with patients. So I love knowing my patients over years and years, and it lets me help them really achieve whatever it is they want to achieve.
0: Describe the challenges diabetic athletes face.
1: Well, the biggest challenge is hypoglycemia, or low blood sugar, because not only can low blood sugar reactions occur after exercise, They also can occur during exercise, and it's really hard, I think, to balance the insulin in particular, what people are eating, and then exercise, and partly it's because a lot of my patients use exercise as a means to lose weight, but then if their blood sugars go low and they have to consume more carbohydrates, then obviously that kind of defeats the purpose. So it's really balancing the insulin and the fuel source with the exercise to make it work right so the person's blood sugars are fine and their caloric intake is not increased.
0: How should insulin dosing change before, during, and after exercise?
1: Well, it depends on the intensity of the exercise as well as the duration of the exercise. So if somebody is exercising very intensively, they're going on an elliptical trainer at full speed for... 45 minutes, their blood sugar actually will go up because of the catecholamine release after the intense exercise, and so those people might get discouraged because their sugars go up, but when somebody starts exercising and gets trained, that is, their muscles become more sensitive, then their blood sugars will start to go down. So the way to adjust it at first is that the meal before the exercise, and the best time for a person to exercise is 90 minutes after eating, I generally reduce the rapid-acting insulin before the meal, before the exercise, by about 50%. Now, that's assuming moderate exercise for 30 to 60 minutes. And then I have the person check their blood sugar when they first start, half an hour into exercise to see what their sugar is. And if it's going down, then they need to consume carbohydrates, usually 15 to 30 grams. But if not, then I have them continue the exercise, then check after the exercise, and then again before the next meal. So I have them start to give me a pattern of their blood sugars. Often the delayed hypoglycemia may be 8 to 10 hours later. So some of my patients reduce their long-acting insulin overnight so they don't go low at night after exercise. But a lot of this is trial and error based on the individual patient and having them test before, during, and after exercise so I can start figuring out what they should do.
0: What types of carbohydrates should be eaten?
1: Well, I usually have people have with them something that's quickly absorbed. So little juice boxes are good. Four ounces of juice is 15 grams of carbs. But a lot of my patients like to get that goo stuff. It comes in a, like a gel, which is what they sell at sporting goods stores. And a lot of the sport drinks that have, you know, glucose in them are also helpful. But goo is easy to take when people are running, and often it's easy to take because when you start eating the goo, it gets absorbed in the mucous membrane so that people don't get nauseated from drinking too much fluid. And then the, you know, fluid is, is fine. The, the juices, the sports drinks that have carbohydrate are fine.
0: Are there special considerations for diabetic children who are involved in sports?
1: Well, one of the problems with children with diabetes in sports is that kids in general just eat more carbohydrates and run around and they have all this wonderful energy. And you don't want them to go low during sports because obviously that's a problem in kids. You keep their blood sugars actually somewhat higher than in adults. So with kids doing sports, I tend to give more frequent snacks. So I may not necessarily have them do as much complicated testing as an adult where they don't want to go low because they're afraid of extra calories, but might rather give a kid a snack after half an hour of exercise just to give their sugar levels at a good level so that they can run around and not worry about hypoglycemia. With kids, it's more about just maintaining their blood sugars at a good level and you know letting them go out and have fun.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Anne Peters, professor of medicine and director of the University of Southern California Clinical Diabetes Program and author of the book Conquering Diabetes, a cutting-edge comprehensive program for prevention and treatment. Dr. Peters, what are your thoughts about supplements? for athletes with diabetes?
1: Well, it's hard to know exactly what people should do because there's not a lot of proven evidence about supplements in any person who has diabetes or not in terms of enhancing performance. Now, obviously banned substances are banned substances and things like growth hormone and steroids are particularly bad in people with diabetes because it makes their sugars even higher. So I'm not even talking about those, but the routine supplements that people take when they're exercising, there's a whole bunch of different ones that people adhere to, and I don't see any contraindication, although I don't see any huge indication either. So in terms of supplements, other than, you know, making sure that there's enough glucose and protein in the system to maintain normal blood sugar levels, people can do the supplements based on whatever their particular interest is, training is, whatever they want to do.
0: Can the excitement of a competitive event cause blood sugar to spike?
1: Well, yes. It can cause blood sugars to go way up because of the stress of competing. And so I have completely different insulin regimens for patients on race days as opposed to training days. And I have an Olympic swimmer I've helped. I've got triathletes that I help. I try work with all sorts of athletes, and each one is different, but in each case, there's a difference in how they need to be treated on days they're competing, so it's just like everything, paying attention to detail and getting really careful logs, so what I'll do is if I have a patient who's training and running their first triathlon, I'll have them keep very careful records for that first one, and then I'll use it to help coach them through the next one and then the next one so we can get it just right.
0: What are the mechanics when diabetics run the marathons and triathlons?
1: What I try to do is have capacity for the individual to test at transition. So if someone's doing a triathlon, they need to be able to test when they swim and then when they get out of the water and then potentially while they're cycling and then when they get off the cycle and then before and after they're running. And what you don't want to do is to have somebody get so Stressed that they become so resistant to insulin that they go into ketoacidosis at the end of the race. And I've had that happen a couple of times when patients have gotten dehydrated while they were racing. So hydration is vital through these events. And then having tests, and occasionally somebody in a triathlon, for instance, will need to take some insulin because otherwise they really will become just too hyperglycemic. And so part of it is just making sure they have the little teeny-tiniest meter. Some of my patients who race now do continuous glucose monitoring and have a continuous readout of their blood sugars. And then I have them you know, dose insulin depending on what leg of the event they're in and, and whether or not they're going to need it in terms of maintaining a, a good blood sugar level.
0: Are some of your patients running with the pumps?
1: Oh, yes. Pumps are great for people who run. They're not so good for swimmers, although I have triathletes who use pumps, too, and they just take the pumps off for swimming. But a pump is really easy because then you can give the little doses that you might need to overcome some of the hyperglycemia with racing. And sometimes when training, people just take the pump off because they don't need it. But, again, it really depends on how long someone's training for and and what the event is, the intensity of the training.
0: Who are some famous diabetics?
1: Well, Gary Hall Jr. is winner of multiple gold medals. He's a sprinter, he's a swimmer, and he's an amazing athlete and developed type 1 diabetes in between the Athens Olympics and the Sydney Olympics, and I worked really hard with him to work out a regimen that would work, and I went with him to Sydney, and then I went with him to Athens, and in both cases he won gold medals in his event, which is the 50-meter freestyle But he's the one who taught me the most about sport and diabetes because we were so careful monitoring him both in the pool and then, you know, when he was training and then when he was racing. So he just taught me everything I know, I think, about physiology when it comes to diabetes.
0: How old was he when he developed the disease?
1: I think he got it when he was 26.
0: And that's the new onset.
1: New onset type 1 diabetes at age 26, yes, and it almost ruined his swimming career but I was really really proud of his ability to overcome that as an obstacle.
0: How common is that with older people developing the new onset insulin dependent?
1: Well, we used to think it was not very common which is why we call type 1 juvenile onset but we now know that it can happen at any age and Part of why we know more now is because we have anti-GAD antibodies that we can measure to show whether someone has autoimmune type 1 or not. And so what we've found, or at least the recent studies that I've read have shown, is that about 50% of people with type 1 are diagnosed before the age of 20, and these days about 50% after the age of 20. And my oldest patient that I diagnosed with type 1 was 93 years old. So it can really happen at any age, and... People need to be aware of it because if someone's diagnosed with adult-onset type 1, they need to start insulin much sooner than if somebody has type 2.
0: And why the change over the years?
1: Well, I think we've just become better at testing for it. We didn't have the antibody test five years ago, so we didn't know if somebody was a type 2 or a type 1 in adulthood. So part of it's just that we diagnose it better. And it's also an autoimmune process and. We know that, in general, autoimmune diseases are increasing in terms of their frequency in the population, possibly because of environmental changes or, you know, we don't know why. But I think a lot of it is that we just didn't have the tools to diagnose it.
0: Dr. Peters, thank you so much for joining us to discuss diabetes management and athletics. Thanks for having me. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinicians Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which now features our entire library of on-demand podcasts, or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at triple 888- eight. MDXM 157. Thank you for listening.